You've just entered the Disaster Tough podcast, the place for emergency managers, first responders, and humanitarians who want to get the job done. Stories, lessons, and tips are provided by field experts. I'm your host, John Scardina, owner of Doberman Emergency Management and former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters. Disaster Tough is our mantra. It combines experience, training, and analytics in order to be successful at any stage within the disaster life cycle. It means being a professional in emergency and disaster services. Doberman Emergency Management lives by this. If your organization needs to fill a gap, please contact us. We can help. Contact info is in the show notes. We also support other products and organizations that will increase your ability. For example, if you fight wildfires, hurricanes, a pandemic, any disaster in the field, at a hospital or command center, listen up. You're missing out if you do not use L3 Harris for your radio comms. They are secure, portable, mobile, and scalable, which is great news for us in the field. A truly disaster-tough radio system. Check out the XL family of radios by clicking on the show notes or simply go to L3Harris.com. When you think of situational awareness, you need to think of Futurity IT. They are disaster tough because they saw a gap and figure out how to close it by creating the Orion and Athena applications. Situational awareness is all about speed, coordination, and accuracy of information. Futurity IT's Orion app collects and provides preliminary damage assessments and integrates all incident action plan documents with WebEOC. The Athena app allows for planning, contact tracing, and customizable group coordination in every single phase of the disaster lifecycle. The best part? Futurity IT made both applications extremely intuitive. It's so easy to use. Click on the show notes today to schedule a free demo. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this week. We get Jason Crowderville back here. If you recall, he was on the show maybe eight months ago, seven months ago, and we had a great discussion talking about data and then COVID-19. And um, we used lots of analogies like using, uh, like driving in a car and, and why it's so productive there. Today, we're going to be switching kind of gears and we're going to be talking more about that training. It's a really important time in emergency management. Spring is, always brings on tons of training. And so today, we're going to be kind of talking about the law of transferability and training and like how to do it correctly using data and using all these different ideas that to, to bring in change management. So Jason, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Um, I'm glad to be back. I, I wish that I could say that the world is fundamentally different than it was when we last met, but we're still on the tail end of the, of the slog, it seems like. Well, we'll get you back on eventually when it's like all clear and then we can maybe do it in person. That'll be more fun. But, uh, you know, things have improved. We started the vaccination process. We've, uh, I think, well, last time I saw, we're up to like 4 million people a day getting vaccinated. And so we're, we're definitely making changes here in California. I think on April 15th, they're opening it up to the general public, everybody 16 and older. So we're kind of going the right direction. I think B117 is kind of trying to punch us in the face right now, the variant. We'll see what happens there. Let's talk about kind of the experiences you've had in the last several months. You've been working on numerous different projects. And in fact, um, you're helping your students up there in SUNY, um, so these capstone projects, and you're pulling in data. So just for a re reminder for, our, for everybody who's listening on the show, what are the big things that you're working on right now? And what's kind of like that, that passion that drives you in emergency management? Got it. So I, I would say the, the focus for us right now is, is a radical um, 
a radical drive towards towards people. And in any system that we're looking at or any topic that we're taking on, what are the people doing and what do the people need to be doing? So last time I was here, we talked um, about a fledgling project we were working on related to um, severe weather decision-making, better integrating data and models into that. We also talked about the nexus that has to pandemics and um, and pandemic models and, and overall trying to get away from the question, which model should we be using and more towards what are all of the models telling us about our overall risk equation and how do we make good decisions based on that? And so we're building um, training focused on the weather side right now, but that will be portable to the, to the pandemic side as well. Um, we have two, uh, we're part of a, of a university. So we have two student teams. Um, one is working on social media, um, looking at social media and sort of how people are responding to um, especially COVID-19 on the internet, especially in terms of misinformation, disinformation. Um, Derek Morrison, my number two at, at the NCSP, has a, has a great background in that and has been able to bring that to students. And then um, our other student team is our student support team, which I'm incredibly proud of. They're speaking directly with students in isolation and quarantine on campus. And we've been you know, sort of supporting the overall campus response in terms of contact tracing, um, identifying cases, getting them isolated, and, and stopping the spread on campus. So um, it's been a dynamic last eight months. Um, but really, in any of these topics, the focus for us has been on on people and what people are doing and how people can adapt to this crazy roller coaster we've had. Your role has been so critical because, like, there's like a real world case scenario here where, like, SUNY is multiple university campuses, right? You act yes. as an emergency planner and you help out, especially with the, the student body, be able to focus more on the emergency management aspects and the, those data aspects. But other universities haven't ha- necessarily had that. And um, like, the, like the awkward duck in the room here a little bit is, you know, that's impacted the, the other campuses differently. And, um, you know, people have had to, there have been career changes because of that. But, be, but under your leadership and under your support and working with those different groups and understanding emergency management principles, especially during the COVID season and, and like pulling in what we've learned really through the pandemic is that reminder that public health isn't the, isn't the vessel that we should be using for pandemic response. They look at long-term trends. It's not their daily job to say, wake up and say, hey, how do I do a response? emergency managers know how to do a response, especially those who are uh, applying data to that. And so like our discussion last time about like the in- intersection of emergency management and data, like really applies because what we're, what we're not, what we're talking about isn't so much like a, a singular point of intersection where, you know, hopefully there's not a crash between the two, but what we're talking about is moving the needle forward. And so both groups are elevated, almost like what I think of is like raising raising a tower, right? So if you have that that triangle, inter, tri, triangle intersection, the more you move up together, the closer those two things come together and the more stable it becomes. And so like, that's what I like to think of in emergency management and data. Um, but rather, I, I really want to talk about like, again, this law of transferability. It's an economics term for our listeners. And really what that means is when I have a skill set, if I'm a firefighter or a police officer or if I've been working in, even in the university system, or you know, if, I, if I've been doing GIS, right? I did GIS for a time. Anytime you switch into a new role, right? Emergency managers switch into roles all the time. 
if I'm in the planning section and if I go into mitigation or if I'm in mitigation now I'm going to ops or if I'm in ops and I want to do something with environmental hazmat, anytime you have that trans transferability, you know, law applied, it basically means your skill set naturally diminishes. It's not a it's not a slight on you. It's saying, hey, you have a new skill set and we have to we have to train you up. And that's what we want to talk about today is how to train you up and why that's so important. And so um, Jason and I were talking previously on the show before the show started about this this period of time where you transfer your skill and then you have to do this training. And there's a right, right way to do the training and then there's not as a productive way to do the training. And so Jason, can you walk through those those two different mindsets for our listeners and say like, okay, how should I be doing training, providing the training and receiving the training? Absolutely. This is something that we're pretty passionate about. So um, first, I want to kind of take aside training for practice sake, right? So say, you know, you're a law enforcement agency and you're doing tactics and they're well-established tactics in your department and you're just running your guys through reps. I say guys colloquially. Um, let's take that and put that aside. By and large, when you're doing training, when you're conducting a training course, you're trying to change the behavior of the people in that audience right? Uh, you know, whether that behavior is what they say or what they do, um, you, you're trying to create some type of change in that group. But when we look at change management theory, we, we tend to skip over a pretty critical point, which is what are the barriers to that, in this case, person, could also be a system, but in this case, person, adapting to that change. And so, for example, do they agree with you? is a really good a first question. Um, <laughs> That's a really great and, first question, yeah. And, and so looking at it that way, your first job isn't usually to convey new information. That's part of it. You have to do that, of course. But it's conveying it in a way that is convincing a group of people to change their mindset about something in the way you want them to change it. Those are two very different, very, very different things. Um, and so I'll use uh, somewhat of a, of a good current example, broadly speaking, which is uh, this ongoing discussion we have about diversity and inclusion and social, social justice. You're building training on, say, you know, implicit bias. And you're coming in there and just explaining what you know about implicit bias and what you think needs to change about implicit bias. And you're not trying to sort of bridge that connection with the audience that you're talking to and, and convince that audience that that's what they should be doing. You're not doing enough, mm. right? It may make you feel better. You may be checking a box in having conducted the training, but if it didn't cause the outcome that you want it to cause, um, then you've not accomplished the goal of, of what you were there to do in the first place. So, um, that I think is the starting point for the discussion is what are you trying to accomplish? And if that, if that accomplishment is change, what's standing in the way of that adaptation and what do you have to do with that audience to get past it? Some people listen to that and hear that argument and they say, Oh, are you telling me I need to be a sales rep? And my answer is yes, you are selling this. Like you're not selling a car. You're not, but you're trying to, anytime you try to change somebody's behavior, it's not, we use manipulation as like this negative term. What we're trying to do is convince them through every skill set we have, positive skill set we have, not coercion or anything like that, 
but to say, hey, like what you were doing doesn't necessarily work. And uh, the, the car salesman analogy is actually kind of a funny one to use because if you notice, if you go buy, buy a car, a really great car salesman, well, when you drive back into the lot after testing that new car and you have this emotional attachment to your other car, they'll have you park next to your old car. You're like, oh man, I, I really like my car. I know it. I don't have a payment on it. And like all of a sudden you, you drive up and you're like, you've been sitting in air conditioned seats and like it has all leather and all this stuff. And you look over and your, your car has scratches on it. And you know, it's like FEMA sucks painted on the side. I don't know, something ridiculous, but like <laughs> you have like this crappy car and you're like, oh, right. Like this is why I like it. And that's kind of what has to happen in these meetings sometimes is we have to peel back the layers and say, this is what you could have. This is what you're doing. And you have to address that in in kind of frank terms with them. You have to understand their culture and where they're coming from. But if they don't if they don't even want to agree with you, they're just going there they literally are going in there to check a box and saying, like, I did your training. Right? It's but you also hundred percent. You have the other problem. 100%. Yeah, yeah. You have the other problem too, right? You have like what I say about um sexual harassment training for organizations. There is not a single logical person on earth who was like, oh, I took that training and oh, I'm not supposed to smack that person when they walk by me. You know, like that training is not for them. That training is to protect the organization, right? Because all the idiots out there who are going to do something stupid anyways, like that training is not changing them. And so like there's definitely training to inform of like, okay, I'm, I'm covering the basis here. But what you're talking about is if peeling back the layers and getting people on board, right? hundred percent. And I, I would say too, that often when you talk about trying to get somebody good at something, you don't have a lot of time in the training arena to actually get that done. So a good example, the first course I was ever involved in here was a course on complex coordinated terrorist attacks. Um, you develop in cooperation with NYPD and others after, uh, the Mumbai attacks. And, um, a few years into delivering it, um, one of our subject matter experts came to me and said, I don't understand, you know, the, the basic concept of training is you crawl, crawl walk, run, right? You, you start basic and you build up to complex. Here we have these, these folks for, for, for these law enforcement EMS folks for three days. And, you know, we're spending maybe two hours with them on, on room clearing and integrated movement, and they haven't perfected that. And we're already throwing them into these complex scenarios. And, I really, you know, it, it obviously it stuck with me and it bugged me at the time, but my response to him ended up being, how quickly do those skills you just mentioned depreciate? He said, very, very quickly. At some point, you don't know, practice room clearing and integrated movement with your team very often, you know, that that skill depreciates. I said, so can we agree that that's not what we're actually here to do? What we're here to do is show this group of people that, and it was controversial at the time, Law enforcement and EMS need to be more closely attached at the hip during violent incidents, A, due to a potential 360-degree threat during a complex coordinated attack, and B, because it helps you get medical care to victims more quickly. And so to convince them, we have to send them on that test drive. We have mm. to put them in that scenario. So we have them do room clearing so that their level of room clearing training doesn't prevent them from getting through the scenario. But the goal isn't to make them experts at room clearing. The goal is to show them there is a more viable model for you to bring back to your jurisdiction on how to respond to, a, to really any violent incident. Um, and, you know, 
I think that that was important for me, an important evolution for me, that conversation and understanding that we're, we're not there to build skills. We were there to affect a change that ended up rippling across the state and the country very quickly. Yeah. And what you said earlier about like the building skills, that's where it comes in those repetitive. We're going to we're going to drill this a million times. But what we're talking about is a training that is changing behavior. Right. And so uh, talk about an, uh a real another real world scenario is like that active shooter training that we do. What we like to do, what, this is going to be like trade secret stuff, so everyone can listen up. We can steal our our idea here. But what we like to do, yeah, uh, no, you should listen, yeah, and because um, we're we're here to help uh, change agent stuff. This is a change agent moment. What we like to do when we get hired to do active shooter training or present to a school board about active shooters, and we're trying to get them to change from hide in the corner and wait to death for, for death to run, hide, fight, or, you know, something a little more complex of getting those, those kids out of there. Um, the, the, the practice of, okay, we're going to, we're going to do what you've been, what you're teaching in schools. We're going to, um, we're going to stand outside the door. And when we knock, that means an active shooters here and you follow all your processes. Okay. And what they don't know is that we have already a key to the room. Right. And so, what happens is they shut the door, they try to lock her, they can't lock the door, and they, they turn off the lights and they all hide under the, the podiums or, or the chairs around there. And we go in there and we start, we go around just with our hand and we say bang, 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 bang. And we do it for like two minutes and we turn back the lights and people are just, they're frustrated, they're angry. They're like, oh, I just wanted to do something. And then we go back there and like, okay, we're going to do it again. And you know, with what, how we're going to do it. So we give them all a Nerf ball and we go back in the room and we say, okay, I'm the active shooter. And they all start throwing the Nerf balls at me and we're not making them experts of how to fight. But what happens is like verbatim every time it's like, oh, I felt so much more empowered. That's the word empowered. And as soon as they start saying the word empowered, I know that they have officially got on board. And so then we can start to say, well, think about how your kids must feel and these teachers must feel. And uh, we start going through the process with them. And again, that's kind of like a trade secret thing, but please take that for your organization if you're listening to that. If you want to use it, you can use it. But again, that's like, it's just showing that um, like change, getting people on board is step one for sure. Well, yeah. And I think in both examples, the example you gave, the example I gave, um, these are horrifying situations that you're pushing people to be involved in. And it really does go against conventional wisdom on training to start at that level mm. and to, to dive into a scenario with, you know, minimal on-ramp um, because it, it seems to go against crawl, walk, run. Crawl, walk, run is good once you start conveying information and skills, but there's a step before that. And, you know, that it's integrated with that, but it's the first thing that has to happen is you've got to get that group on board. And a scenario is, is really the best way to do it. I can actually pivot us a little bit on that to, to, to take an example on data, where when we were over the summer, one of the questions that, that we in our School of Public Health were asked to answer for administration was, um, what model should we be listening, looking at, or, or how should we be, you know, interpreting all of these models that were out there last summer about what our reopening metrics should look like and identified the problem pretty quickly that 
hey, we've got to get these folks thinking about how to handle this data, but also we're missing a key data point. We're missing asymptomatic spread. And our School of Public Health and our RNA Institute have been pushing for, um, for surveillance testing, for proactive surveillance testing on campus. So what we did was we built scenarios, um, a sort of progressive scenario, you know, where we said, hey, this is, these are the decisions that you're making. These are the metrics that you have. And in the last stage of the scenario, used an example where community spread was being reflected with asymptomatic spread on campus before, um, you know, before it really started to hit the case count in the data. And that going through that experience and realizing as a decision maker, I don't have this tool at my disposal now. It makes you want that tool at your disposal. It's, it's, the, it's the training version of driving up next to the old car and saying, hey, do you see how this approach is giving you more data? And, you know, UAlbany became, you know, one of the first schools to, to, in the SUNY system to have a surveillance testing program and um, has consistently been ahead of the curve because, um, because our administrators were willing to go through that experience and, and sort of test drive ahead of time, you know, what they were going to need, what decisions they were going to need to make, what data they would need. And then they were able to make good decisions on how to get that data. Yeah. As you're talking about, I think of uh, this experience where an incident commander was like, well, you're always talking about data. What is data to me? So there was kind of a snarky comment, but I, I ended up answering it legitimately. And so I'm going to ask you the same question. For those emergency managers on here who have no college degree, or even if they have a college degree and they, they're just like, data science, like that's, that's that nerdy stuff. I don't want to deal with that, right? What would be your answer? What is data to an emergency manager? Data, data is taking this and turning it into this. So big to and small that, for those who don't see, yeah. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, now that we're on video. Yeah, yeah, know. it's hard to... <laughs> so... um. Last time we talked, I, I used the example of triage, where triage is data management. You're taking a bunch of different medical indicators and turning it into one data point, you know, for the sake of argument, red, green, yellow. Mm. Um, and so that's how you have to think about it, right? Is it's taking the complexity and it's breaking it down into something that is easier to visualize and look at. So you don't have to think about you don't have to think about an algorithm to use an algorithm, right? That, yeah. that, is, that is an algorithm. That is something that's going to, you know, where you're processing data through and coming up with a number that doesn't look like, but it's something that, that we're familiar with already. I think that's step one. And then step two is it's something that helps you make decisions faster. That if you know, Bingo. A, if you have somebody on your team that can build good visualization, and then B, you know how to interpret those visualizations, um, it takes things that you would have to have five meetings with experts to figure out and distills it down into something that you can just look at and go, okay, I, I got it. I see what's going on. Perfect. My, my answer to him for the sake of argument was, um, he said, what is data to, to me? I said, data is situational awareness. And I've had this like long, long standing internal fight of GIS shouldn't be in planning. It should be in operations and in a response team because you're really helping out more uh, operations a lot more. 
But I've also had this internal fight of like GIS should be within situational awareness. Situational awareness should be over GIS because it is data. You think of like a really great functioning GIS or a situational awareness team. They're pulling in information from all over the, the place, disseminating that out in clear, understandable information to others. That is data management. Whether they're pulling in news information, social media, traffic, um, or actual data through SQL queries or whatever, um, all that's being pulled into information to be able to help you make decisions faster as you just called out. So great answer there. Absolutely. So in terms of situational awareness and triage and be able to process large amounts of information very quickly, which is, I think that was the analogy there, pulling it in. Um, let's talk about like some scenarios and we're going to spitball this real quick. We didn't prepare this at all, but I'm going to give like four or five different incidents. Okay. And we're just going to say the type of maybe the culture that happened beforehand, maybe we won't even address that, but we'll talk about how you could do training to affect change using data. Okay. So, um, essentially let's talk about, and this is all going to be coming from the perspective of someone without response experience. So they don't have a response experience in a large scale disaster. And then they're presented with a large scale disaster. Talk to us about some of these changes. Okay. Now, if we fail miserably at this, remember everybody, we're spitballing this. So we're affecting yeah, change. Last time you sent me this stuff ahead of time. This <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah. Crack the knuckles, stretch. Here we go. Uh, using data. Okay. Based off of the scenario, we'll start with something pretty straightforward, a hurricane. What is hurricane? What do you want to do in a hurricane to change data for, for that response? Um, this is going to be. You're going to want to give a scenario. You're going to want to give a scenario where you have a hurricane that that or a storm that's coming in that has potentially you know pretty divergent paths. One of them is higher likelihood, and one of them is higher consequence. Mm. Um, and you want to show that. So most folks, and this is starting to change, the visualizations coming out of the National Weather Service are starting to change. Most folks still look at the cone, right? So the cone may not give you the best understanding of, of just what that split could be. And something hitting, you know, from my op the operating environment I live in, something hitting New York City is a very different consequence map than something hitting in upstate New York, in a rural county in upstate New York. Um, and so have them, you have them ask questions and, and by and large, you're going to get the question to the meteorologist, where's the storm going to hit? You know, where is it most likely to hit? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, it's most likely to hit upstate. Okay. That's where you're prepositioning your resources. Yep. Okay. Preposition them up there. Then have them go through the scenario again. And this time feed them the question, where could the storm go? Mm. What's the likelihood that it's going to go there and see if their decision changes based on getting the information that there is less likelihood, but still the possibility that the storm swings south and hits New York city. Yeah. And that change where you're prepositioning your resources based on risk. Okay. First of all, I love that you brought up the cone because I love asking, this is like my, I hate doing this. Not such true. I love doing this, but, uh, it, it makes other people look stupid. I feel bad for that part. But I always ask like the incident commander, or I'll ask somebody else in the field with no data background whatsoever. Hey, where's the hurricane going? Well, I know where it's going. Oh yeah. You keep telling me where you know where it's going. And they'll pull up the picture of the cone and they'll say, this is where it's going. 
I'm like, you have no idea what that cone means, do you? And they're like, what do you mean? This is the path of the hurricane. I'm like, you think it just gets wider than fat and around? Like, yeah. I'm like, okay, well, okay. So then I had to explain to them that, you know, the eye of the hurricane could be anywhere within that point based off of a five year, last five years of how accurate they were with that information. So that's why it gets really wide to really thin. And every single time they're like, wait, what? I'm like, yeah, the eye of the hurricane. And that's based off of all the models. This is just the width of all the models, basically, in that, that trajectory. And so uh, bringing up that is like a great way to talk about like the use of data in um, emergency management. Okay, that was one. Let's do another one. Let's do a little more complex because you brought it already up. So a coordinated, a coordinated terrorist attack. What does data do for you there? Um, it is more complex. You're right. Yeah, it's fun. I like this. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to focus on, I'm going to focus on right of boom on this one. Um, just for the sake of argument. Yeah. So, um, you know, because I think, I don't think there's good data integration right now on left of boom and right of boom information on the, on the, at the operational level where you can make an immediate decision. So let's focus on once you start responding. So um, let's say you have a scenario where where there is an attack on a major venue, right? And um, you know you you put your resources towards that. You know if there's an attack on a major venue, say a sports stadium, you're sending lights and sirens, right? Um, but if it's a complex coordinated attack, there might next be an attack downtown. Now what? So yeah. now you've got you know, anywhere from five to, to 10, unless you're New York city, you've got five to 10 agencies responding at least from all different levels of jurisdiction. Um, and they've suddenly got to get redeployed to another area. Your data can show you where they are. Um, your data can show you, um, where they need to be, what's going on in that area. So therefore what assets you need can also start to give you a sense for, where your victims are and, um, and and your resources, where people are flowing, what trauma center, so that not only can you make those decisions in the moment, but pivot quickly as the scenario unfolds. Because if there is a complex coordinated attack in an area, uh, it's going to be relatively unpredictable. Um, my my favorite is probably not the right word, but I think a, a good example is in... Um, in Mumbai, one of the things that the attackers did was put IEDs in, in random taxi cabs, which made it look like they were all over yeah. the place. And so the faster you can get a sense for where these attacks are happening and what they are and get that operational picture updated so you can make command decisions, the more resilient you're going to be to the purposeful chaos that's being presented by those attackers. There's um, two situations I'm thinking of. One is a uh... Um, of the movie that just came out, it might even be called Run Hide Fight. It's the active shooter movie. I will hold off by review of the movie, but there is one scene where the kid, as I'm not giving anything away, the kid blows up like a storage shed in a farming community, and all of a sudden there's like 200 police cars res- responding to a, a fire at a storage shed. We'll get away from that, but the idea is that, like, you know, to pull it into a situation. Uh, the other one is the real world, and it's one that I studied pretty closely when I was in London, and it's uh, pretty rough, the the 7-7 attacks. 
Uh, we don't really think a lot about the 7-7 attacks in the U.S., but it applies so much to what we do, and we, we really should be studying it. So for those listeners, study 7-7 attacks if you want to um, figure out how to do a uh, stop a coordinated response, but uh, attack, rather. the um, One of the bombers, he, we saw on text messages him asking people if they'd really gone through with it. And um, he did this for like a couple hours. And so... It wasn't necessarily supposed to be a coordinated multi-hour attack, but it basically chickened out. And it was until he saw the news and he realized that they did go with it, he got onto a bus and then killed himself and a bunch of other people. And so um, you have that situation as well. So like, just understanding that, like, don't listen to the CNNs of the world. It was like, oh, there's there's a rumor that there could be possibly another shooter. You know, like, it's just all BS. Like really try to like follow like that those eight steps of of terrorism before acting and seeing like where that could happen and like casualty centers and, and you start to pull in that data and it's like okay this is the most likely scenario of like where they're going to do it so great call outs there okay uh, and, and, and just and just to wrap it up I, on that uh, I think that here again and I, I love your used car metaphor or your your new car metaphor old car listening to dispatch and hearing that come in and asking for updates via dispatch and maybe doing some pen and paper. New car, dashboard, GIS data, where is this happening? Where are your resources? How do you move them around? Absolutely. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we di- start discrediting all the, the the reports that we get on the ground. We want those reports on the ground, but be- it becomes one of several tools. You should be having a ton of tools. One should be reporting from the ground. Another one should be doing modeling of where the disaster is going to go. I can talk about that one in a second. In fact, that'll be my fourth one. But our third disaster is a real world one that just happened. What could have data done to either prevent or slow down, not slow down, but speed up the response of a massive power outage in Texas? Ah. ah yes i don't know how much you study this i've been looking at this quite a bit because we work on psps plans for our company and there's quite a bit of data that i feel like that could have helped them out there so let's see what you know about it so i'm gonna i'm gonna not get too specific because i know you know more than i do about this topic (laughs) you're allowed to be you're you're allowed to go yeah and pull out and and just look at a scenario from a from a power failure standpoint anyway is is the key is is understanding what's next. And, and the power grid is something that is complex enough where there's a level of instinct there. But you and I always talk about the, the sort of tension between gut instinct and data-driven decisions. And that there are benefits to both, but that they are sometimes at odds. Where right. the data is telling me one thing, my gut is telling me the other, and I don't know how to reconcile that. Um, power grid is a good example of where you know, there's, there's not a lot of gut there because it's tough. You know, we, we get hit with hurricanes enough where people can go, I know what this hurricane's going to do. A power outage, it's so complex. It becomes so difficult to wrap your head around so quickly. Um, and so, again, I think with that scenario, what I would want to do is is almost go with a, a scenario response on, I'm going to have you go through this response with the data they had. Um Right. Here's here's the data they had at their at their, you know, at their fingertips, based on the systems we know they have. Here's the data they could have had. Right. And yeah. have you make decisions again in both 
setting, um, whether and really get a sense for what are my sort of critical fa failure points and how can I quickly get ahead of those critical failure points as opposed to constantly being on the reactive and, and seeing it go down. And I think um, two types of data can help there. One, you know, power grid operations and smart grid and stuff like that. And two, um, weather data and meteorology. There's our atmospheric sciences department is working right now with Con Ed on a um, microgrid in New York City that's designed for this purpose to get a sense for what's going on on the ground vis-a-vis -vis critical facilities in New York City and to hopefully, you know, again, just provide more tools to get ahead of things in real time. Yeah, the um, again, I'm on this. I'm on this kick of two today. I have another kick of uh, another kick of two. So, it, this actually comes from the two interviews that I had. One with um, George Siegel, the director of The Last House Standing, and Dr. Stephen Johnson, uh, counterterrorism expert, who, by the way, answers to Parliament. Um, and so this guy really knows his stuff. And so on the George Siegel side. He was talking about his son was in Texas before the storm hit, and he was like, hey, this, you're going to have this uh, freezing event. It's going to be really rough. And his son was basically like, come on. Like, how much do we really know? And he's like, I'm a meteorologist. Like, yeah, we might figure out where the the, the wind and the rain's going to go, but we can pretty much accurately guess if it's going to be cold. And um, and so they, they had that. Um, and then uh, Dr. Johnson was talking about um, he was like, it, just in general, like our societal systems are efficient. We have just enough to keep going and we, we don't really, we don't really store up. And the comment I made then is the comment I make now. And so I'm sure someone's going to sue me over this. So that would suck. But, uh, in 2017, I responded to hurricane Harvey in Texas. We had a problem with fuel because fuel at gas tanks and people are, either trying to get out of town or they're trying to store up or whatever. There's lots of different reasons why we spend more fuel than what we had. And I said at the time, you will have a problem with this in the future unless you start mitigating this. And so um, I, I think the the takeaway for the training piece from my end would be, um, how do you mitigate something like this from happening in the future? Is it complex or is it easier than what, what you think it is? Because you have a massive problem if something goes, right? It's just like if a dam breaks. If a dam breaks, you have all these different systems you didn't even think about that start being impacted by that dam break, like the two that happened in Michigan uh, last year. I, I think it was last year, last uh, May. Um, but it's all blending together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, if you have if you are understanding your amount of storage and the typical increase of people trying to get more fuel through keeping their houses warm, through their generators, through getting out of town, all those kind of things, then you can start to say like, okay, like reserves might really help us out here. Um, I, I also think it, it causes a discussion of how the power grids work. There's three different power grids in Texas and how that works with the national power grid and like that's not even getting into the problem of, you know, a, a wide scale power outage um, across the United States for an extended period of time. You can say X, Y, or Z, EMP or whatever, but it's it, it's interconnected. And how is it connected? And what do you have to do to mitigate it? So, whole discussion on mitigation. Okay, so my fourth one. This might be our final one for the sake of time because this is really interesting. But um, we've been talking about this for a while, but I like it. Is wildfires. 
what can data do and what does data what should data do for a wildfire response so i'm going to start back at um weather again and the things that meteorologists can do as you pointed out that folks don't realize that they can do um weather has a huge impact on where wildfires are going to spread and um you know what the opportunity is going to be to stop it so the integrating layering the weather data on your data on where the fire is hitting and then um as it as this hazard is is slowly or quickly depending on where you are what vantage point you're looking at moving towards infrastructure moving towards houses moving towards vulnerabilities would be really handy to have a real-time sense for those vulnerabilities and be able to proactively mitigate um, as things are moving along and know where you need to devote resources to proactively mitigate. Because, you know, you can keep trying to stop the fire. That's, that's step one. But you also know, okay, meteorologists can tell you, hey, listen, based on X, Y, and Z, the storm is going, or the wildfire is going to move in this direction or likely to move in this direction. Give you a sense for, okay, um, you know, these are my critical resources in that area. I can, I can devote resources to or critical vulnerabilities in that area. I can devote resources to mitigating the impact um, ahead of time. And again, you know, we, we keep coming back to speed and anticipation. The more data that you have on that, that's easy to visualize. Right? We're not talking about, you know, sitting, you know, in the, in the old Matrix movie and looking at the numbers scrolling down the screen and trying to interpret it. No, you want it visualized. Um, a picture say, on a map, yeah. Right, picture on a map, informed by meteorologists, know what questions to ask, don't ask where's it going to go, ask where could it go, and assess your risk based on probability using the data. I love that. The great thing about the, the wild, wildland firefighters that I've met and the instant commanders there to their credit, they really use that that information. And um, to your point, it's all about weather for them, and it's about weather and critical infrastructure, and um, you know what what can we save, what can we save? And wildfires move so incredibly fast that like they have to use data. Like my biggest problem with the like the actual response of a wildfire is the lack of coordination that happens with all all those pieces. They're moving so fast in direction A. And they don't understand that the the shelters are trying to move in direction B. And the state has legal authority. I'm talking about California specifically. The state has legal authority. Cal OES, Cal Fire has legal authority. And they're all kind of moving these different pieces. Data can make that easier for everybody. Salvation Army, where are the survivors going to be staged at so we can feed them? Red Cross, where are they going to be so that we can we can put them in shelters? All those coordination pieces it must be brought together. And my biggest problem with data right now is that they're not coordinating very well. And I, I think that happens in most disasters. Everybody has their little piece of information and that makes them feel like, like, oh, I have the power because I have the data. Like you're a moron. Like if people are being impacted, you have no power. You've failed. And so my thought process is as everybody's gathering their pieces, you know, coming together and I love that 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 call out you're on 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 weather. Another thing that we had to focus on the one thing that the one one of the tasks that I had when I was on the national team we had wildfires is everybody was responding to the fire and I was like okay these fire guys have really good data of where it could go and 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 understanding that risk. 
I wanted to know where all the mudslides were going to happen. And I'm like, okay, like if, like there was this thought process and there's a thought process sometimes and I'm kind of giving the, 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 the stuff away for free here, but that's okay. Um, like the, the thought process here is I can let it burn in this area because I know it's not going to impact anybody or any system. So we're just going to let it burn. And I think that's smart because you have, you have limited resources. However, if that burned area creates mudslides that go down and impact a major highway and kill some people on the highway for six months, maybe you still do want to prevent that fire from going there. Uh, I think what we're also getting to, like, um, even though we talked about right of the boom uh, on that other scenario, is data, the, the use of data mitigates disasters. If you use data in the right way, you can mitigate disasters. That's disaster tough. Resiliency, screw resiliency. I don't want to bounce back. I don't want to have a disaster. And so, like, I just want to punch that hurricane in the face before it impacts my home, right? And I think that's that's really what data can do for us. I'm getting on my uh, my passionate side here. But, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a fun exercise even doing this together of, like, different disasters and what data and training can do for us. Yeah. I, I agree. And riffing on, on your mitigation side, that whether you're listening to um, former administrator Long on, on this show a couple weeks ago or um, commissioner and hopefully soon administrator Chris Wells' testimony, this shift towards mitigation is going to involve a lot of convincing private industry or insurance or private citizens to do X. So when we're talking about these scenarios we're designing, we're talking about the response side, but also these same scenarios can be helpful in convincing the utility companies and governments in Texas that given what is, given the current trend, and you know, I think you got to stay away from certain terminology, but given the certain trend, it's more likely that you're going to get cold temperatures in Texas. Um, it's more likely that you're going to get a hurricane hit New York than it was 20 years ago. It's more likely that you're going to have a named storm in your region. Um, than it was. And so there's a lot of convincing that has to happen to get people to want to, to go above that sort of just-in-time delivery model that you were talking about. And the types of scenarios that we were talking about can also really give folks a sense for, these are your consequences if you don't do this. Mm. Um, this is what your old car looks like based on this new car. And um, really empower decision makers with a tool that is designed not to just go to the power company and say to them, or go to the insurance company and say to them, if you don't do this, bad things will happen. Put them in the scenario and show them. Yeah, I love that. The um, And when I worked at the National Cancer Institute, and I got to pull up this old video, it's somewhere on the, the web. Hopefully it's the dark web, nobody finds it. But um, I did this off a cup video where I explained we, we created, I might've talked about this on the last time I was with you, the augmented reality sandbox. Yeah. Yeah. So like just finding creative ways to actually show people what it can do for them. And hopefully some of our listeners are like, Oh shoot, I'm not using data in my EMA. Like, yeah, maybe you should, you know, like your situational awareness unit should have a lot more data. Your GIS person should be working with in concert with all these different people in your con ops plan, like it should, you, you know, your playbook should be including some sort of um, a way to both mitigate the disaster from happening, but also how to make your disaster more smooth. Well, and that's what really what we're talking about is we're talking about um, 
you know, that, that sales approach. And so like just going back to that whole sales idea, I'm going to give one more idea to people is anytime you hear a new idea, whether you're in sales or whether you're in emergency management or whatever, you go through the stage of fight or flight, fight or flight. And what sales reps will do is they'll make an, an emotional connection. And your job as an emergency manager is to figure out what that emotional connection. And the reason why you do an emotional connection is because as you process information, you'll either fight it or you'll run away from it, right? And that's just like, wait, do I agree with this? Do I don't agree with it? And so you start going through like the whole process of like, do you agree with it? Or you're just like, no, I don't agree with this, I'm out. But as soon as it becomes an emotional decision, as soon as you're able to say, okay, like I agree with this fundamentally, I like saving lives or understanding your audience. I don't like spending all this money that I don't have to spend. That happens a lot. You need to be aware of that. Like just understanding your audience and what gets them going, those that's how you should approach your training. That's how you should approach, you know, um, getting people on board. So um, it kind of wraps it up for our time. Jason, I, I, ha I asked you this question before. I want to see if your, your answer has changed at all or not. So basically this is, if you're going to change the future of emergency management, right? Or if you're going to change the emergency manager of the future to do one thing different. Now, I don't just say data because duh. But uh, what was one thing that you would like to see our field change? I would like to see our field focus more on people. We love focusing on technology. Technology is a catalyst for change. I got it. We love focusing on processes and policies. They provide the roadmap for change in the right and left flanks. I got it. People drive change. And you can shout until you're blue in the face and you can write all the policies that you want. But if you can't figure out how to connect with the people involved in the process, whether that's your team as an emergency manager, the people that you're working with, the experts that you're sort of brokering, um, or the general population that you're, you know, looking to mitigate vulnerability for you or, or for themselves, really. Um, if you can't, if you can't motivate people toward that change, your success is going to be limited every time. We always look for a quote moment or a drop the mic moment in each show. And that was it. Like it's, it really comes down to people every single time. And uh, the best emergency managers care about people. And when they care about people, you're able to fix things faster. And it's also a really good emotional thing to, to attach to because, you know, we're all in this and emergency managers get it. Like we have to be, we have to be thinking about people. And so I love that answer. Jason, thank you so much for coming back on the show, man. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you. And we definitely have to get you back on when COVID ends for sure. Same. And thanks for having me. It's, it's always fun to talk about this stuff. And uh, I feel like we could talk for another hour and still only have scratched the surface. Yeah, I definitely. Appreciate it. So, we'll, so we have plenty of content to bring it back on. That'll, that'll be great. So, <laughs> hey, everybody, thank you so much for tuning into this week. Uh, we hope that you really got something out of it. You can understand the use of data and training and, and being change agents and not just providing information, but really helping affect change and emergency management. If you like this episode, which you should have, you need to give us that five-star rating and subscribe. You can check us out on our main page on Instagram, Disaster Tough Podcast. We also use our Doberman Emergency Management page on LinkedIn and Facebook. So you can check us out there. If you have a question for Jason, there's always two ways to do it, right? We always have lots of people and we love it. Lots of people sending us emails at info at DobermanEMG.com. But what we really want to start doing is people sending their questions in via Instagram. So if you have a question, lots of other people have that question too. 
Jason can answer it there for sure. We'll be posting more about him. We'll be providing those quotes. We've already had a lot of EMAs share those quotes, which has been really cool for us to see. So tune in there. Make sure you, you subscribe to all those different channels. Send us a question and we'll see you next week. Thanks.